Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. After our summer break, we're getting back into our study of Revelation. But before we begin, we need to review what we've learned over the past two years. In today's lesson, we'll walk through some of the key highlights from our Daniel study and the prophecies that will impact future events found in Revelation. For best context, please download the PDF handout attached to this message on our website, truthmatterschurch.org, or simply watch the video. And on our website, you'll find our entire library of expository studies archived for your reference. Again, our website, truthmatterschurch.org. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cataroja. It's hard to believe that we started our study. It's almost two years ago. To the day we kicked off this study, in that study titled The Intro to Revelation. And in that very first study, I told us way in advance that this was not only going to be an advanced study, but we're going to be spending quite a bit of time laying the groundwork before we even opened the book of Revelation. So you can't say that I didn't warn you of our snail pace. It was also in that very first study, I introduced to us our 10 rules of engagement or our 10 ROEs. Another way to say it, our 10 guiding principles that we set out before we embarked on this journey that we will abide by and follow. And the reason why we had to do that was because if we didn't have any rules or principles to abide by, and I think there's many who unintentionally stand before others teaching the Word of God and unintentionally add or take away from Scripture. That's the last thing that I want to be doing. And if we didn't have any guiding principles in, that we must abide by and follow, then I could potentially add alternative theories to what's already out there. But thankfully, our 10 guiding principles have kept us grounded, and it's, for the most part, kept us on firm foundation. I've said this before, I say it again, I'm not perfect. Did I get everything right the first time? Likely no. Nonetheless, we are continuing to press forward so that we can hear and learn what our God has revealed in His Word. And as far as those 10 ROEs or guiding principles, it has even gone through some refinements over the years, but here was the latest, and this might look familiar to you. If anyone asks me, or when anyone asks you, how do you study the Bible? How do you study the Bible so that you can have a high level of accuracy in handling the text, synthesizing the text, and getting the truth? And these are those 10 guiding principles. This is what we've been doing for these past couple of years, at least. Number one, you shall interpret Scripture with Scripture. Number two, you shall not add or take away from Scripture. Number three, you shall not take Scripture out of context. Number four, and this one's a doozy, you can't, or you shall not cancel Scripture with Scripture. 
And one classic example is on the debate on God's election and free will. Someone will take one scripture and says, oh, predestination is true, and use that to cancel out free will. And the, and the converse is true too. Someone might take some truths in scripture concerning free will and use that to cancel out predestination. Don't use scripture to cancel itself out. Don't do that. And we haven't done that. You shall not cancel scripture with scripture. Instead, you uphold them both. If there's competing truths, if there's truths that doesn't make sense in our mind, nonetheless, it's true. By faith, we accept it. And we allow the Spirit in us to help that truth mature in our minds. Number five, you shall interpret Scripture with a literal fulfillment. The Bible isn't just a story. It just just isn't a history book or a book that has stories in it. There is a, within it, prophecy. God is foretelling what He's done and what He's doing and what He's going to accomplish So we shall interpret Scripture with that literal fulfillment that comes from it. Number six, you shall not over-spiritualize Scripture and explain it away. Number seven, you shall not make church tradition, creeds, or doctrines on par with Scripture. This one's a big one. What is common is that we might hold to a church tradition, even a creed or a doctrine, and we put that on par with Scripture. So that when we study Scripture and you might have a truth or come across a truth that might differ to that creed or doctrine, some of us who are stubborn by nature will resist that learning. Don't do that. Don't elevate anything, whether it be church tradition, creeds, or doctrines, on par with Scripture. If it holds up, great. If it doesn't, be ready and flexible to adapt. Number eight, you shall not elevate man's teachings with Scripture. Number nine, you shall not impose personal bias. And number ten, you shall be corrected by and obey Scripture. We're a work in progress. If there's any pastor or teacher who doesn't feel that they need to be corrected by Scripture anymore, I would say, well, won't you look at the Apostle Paul, who by his own words said, not that I have attained it, but I press on. The great Apostle Paul, who was given these, in, these mysteries and insight into the truths of God, and he was even taken to the third heaven, was even humble enough to say, I haven't arrived yet, and I'm continuing to press on. So all of us, the teacher included, shall be continually corrected by and obey Scripture and not necessarily just holding the line and passing down the teachings of men, church tradition, creeds, or doctrines. Because if we do that, we're handicapping ourselves from a lot of the treasures in His Word. As far as this, it's the thought, and and it can be how to study the Bible, 10 guiding principles. Where we began, the basics. I'm not going to teach us the basics again. But we covered the basics as to what the book of Revelation was about, 
who wrote it when, to whom it was written to, what was its intended purpose, how is it to be interpreted, employing our 10 ROEs, we answered these questions. And last but not least, what do I need to know to understand it? And as for this fifth question, we covered important topics. I know we've learned this before, but if we forget about this as we try to pick up the book of Revelation and go forward, you're not going to see how it converges and comes to fruition. So I felt that we need to really have a decent understanding of these topics. The Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, which was given to Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, was given all the way back in Revelation, uh, all the way back in Genesis 12, and then reaffirmed again in chapter 15. But as you even get into the New Testament, the truths concerning the Abrahamic covenant, the Apostle Paul touched on it in his great epistle, the book of Romans, chapter 4 and chapter 11, even in Galatians 3. The writer of Hebrews alludes to the Abrahamic covenant in Hebrews chapter 11, and even James in, ch in chapter 2 pulls in the Abrahamic covenant. And in a nutshell, what the Abrahamic covenant contains with its promises is that the land of Israel was given to them as an everlasting possession, and Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. If you read the story of Abram, Abraham, he was without child, and his wife was barren at that time, and he was past the age of childbearing. And yet, when God appeared to Abraham, he made this promise to him concerning his descendants, and Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And part of the Abrahamic covenant is the people of Israel will always be God's chosen people. And last but not least, Abraham is the forefather of faith for both believing Jews and Gentiles. We need to really have a good grasp of this. Then it'll make sense as we study the culmination of things in the end times. We also needed to know another covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And with the Mosaic Covenant came with it blessing and cursing. So the law was given to Moses. And you can see that the summary of that law is within the Ten Commandments. And the law and the Ten Commandments was given by God to Moses for the people of Israel. And as part of that Mosaic law, God entered into a covenant with them, with Moses as the mediator. And if you read the account, Moses even took some blood from a sacrifice with some hyssop, and he sprinkled 
the people of Israel with it, saying that they are entering into this covenant with God, the Mosaic covenant. And the people of Israel, if they obey the law, the law promises that they will be blessed. But if the people of Israel disobey the law, they will be cursed. If we don't understand this, you won't understand really the Bible. Because what is happening, at least concerning the people of Israel, from their existence, what explains it is where they stand under the Mosaic Covenant. Through their existence, they've rebelled against God and against Moses. They've rebelled against God throughout their existence, and as a result, God punished them and disciplined them severely. And there's a lot of books and chapters in the Bible that speaks of that devastation, but that's all because of this Mosaic covenant that they agreed as a people to enter into. And the Davidic covenant. Fast forward, when you get to the time of David, God promised to make David's name great and to cut off all his enemies. We can say that at least his successor, Solomon, got to experience that, where all of his enemies were cut off and he was able to have peace and prosperity. But in this Davidic covenant, God promised to plant Israel in peace and safety. And just a little side note here. What was one of the warnings concerning the end times when they will be saying peace and safety? Then suddenly destruction will come upon them. There's some inferences to the Davidic covenant, even in the end times, that someone is staking a claim to that kingdom. And they're going to promise peace and safety just as God promised Israel peace and safety. And then that's going to turn for the worst. Ultimately, when our Lord Jesus himself is revealed from heaven, ready to execute vengeance and judgment on his enemies. What's also part of this Davidic covenant is that God will make a house for him and raise up a descendant after him. And of course, last but not least, David will have a son, the Messiah, who will build a house for God's name, and God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Don't forget about these things, because without it, we can't understand the book of Revelation. I do want to make some side notes here concerning those three covenants. Now, there are other covenants in the Bible, such as the Noah or Noahic covenant, but I wanted to at least touch on these three covenants. A couple of things. We can't know and understand the Bible apart from these covenants that are in the Old Testament. A little trivia here. You know, it says Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament equals Old Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant. Our Bible is broken up even in testaments or covenants. But we can't understand the Bible 
apart from the covenants recorded for us in the Old Testament. I want to ask us a couple of questions. How can you or I tell someone that Jesus loves them and died for them apart from showing them the promises in these covenants from the Old Testament? And how can we learn and study the end times apart from the Old Testament? Jesus is the fulfillment of the blessings and promises in these covenants that God has made with His people in the Old Testament. Amen? And the book of Revelation is the fulfillment of what was spoken of in the Old Testament and the teachings of Christ in the New Testament. Sadly, when it comes to the book of Revelation, a lot of teaching is stuck, for the most part, in the New Testament. No, the New Testament is building. It's a continued revelation, a progressive revelation of what God has promised in the Old. We're just getting more insights. They're building off of the Old Testament. It's the whole thing. Secondly, this is what I want us to know. In these covenants, God Himself, He is not man, initiated the covenants and the terms and conditions of the covenants. And Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 9, which is an often, for whatever reason, contested and debated or difficult chapter. But in Romans 9, in verses 11 through 16, Paul alludes to and speaks of the Abrahamic covenant, and I want to pick it up in verse 11. Paul writes there, For though the twins, speaking of Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, you can even say God's terms and God's conditions, according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said of, to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Another way to say it is this. Those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, you can see the Noah or Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, God was the one who initiated the covenants, and came up with the terms and conditions of the covenant. Not man. Doesn't depend. So the promises that comes with those covenant doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. These are some things that we should keep in mind as we pick things back up. Where else did we begin? Daniel. We spent several months studying Daniel's visions with end times implications, and we should be familiar with these by now, hopefully. The great statue, the four great beasts, the ram and the goat, including the little horn, 70 weeks prophecy. And if you were to ask, why Daniel? Why did we start there? And I want to make a parallel. 
by reading an account recorded by Luke. That helps answer the question, why Daniel? Why did we spend some time in Daniel? On the road to Emmaus account, some of us might be familiar with this account. This is that first day of the week, that Sunday morning or Sunday day, after Jesus rose from the dead, there was a lot of commotion. The women came to Jesus' tomb. They brought the spices they prepared, but they found the tomb empty. They were met by angels declaring to them that Jesus has risen. The women reported it to the apostles, but the apostles didn't believe their testimony. But Peter, he ran to the tomb and he found it empty. And he was marveling as to what happened. And I'd like for us to pick up now on Luke's account on the road to Emmaus, where two of the apostles' company was met by the risen Jesus. And I want to pick it up in Luke 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware which things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And he said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a, a prophet mighty in deed and word and the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But they were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women amazed us. When they went to the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body, they came saying that they also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter his glory? I see all that to see this. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Our Lord went to Moses and said, Have you not read? Don't you understand the Mosaic covenant that you're practicing to abide by? But he began with Moses and then with all the prophets. So I now want to make a parallel, okay? Why did we start with Daniel? It can be said that beginning with Daniel, I'm trying to explain to us the things concerning end times prophecy in the book of Revelation. If you wanted to learn about Christ and the promises within the covenants concerning Christ, yeah, you can go to the Abrahamic covenant, even the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. But if you want to study the end times specifically, then we begin with Daniel.
and we build off of that. And as I mentioned before, the scripture said Daniel understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel was a unique Old Testament prophet in that out of the rest of the Old Testament prophets, he was given visions and dreams just as his other Old Testament prophet contemporaries, but he was given specific visions in greater detail concerning the end times. Our Lord Jesus himself also singled out Daniel in his great Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And I argue this, the book of Daniel is the cornerstone of all end times prophecy. And it gives us the most comprehensive end times prophecy out of all the books in the Old Testament. And it also gives us a timeline of end times prophecy up to and including the end of the age. So that's why we study Daniel. We're familiar with this, this slide by now. But the great statue vision was given to the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And it was Daniel who was given revelation as to what the dream was and what the dream meant. And when we went through that entire study, the great statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw, it represented not only historical kingdoms, but the entire statue also represented the end times world superpower kingdoms and kings who will be here when our Lord Jesus himself will crush and put to an end their reign and set up an everlasting kingdom on earth. And then as far as who is going to be part of those kingdoms and kings and trying to stay true to our guiding principles, it pretty much implicates countries in the Middle East and in Europe and North Africa. For the most part, the kings, kingdoms and kings in that part of the world are in play who will be here in power when our Lord returns. And I want to make an important note about the great statue. And this is one of those truths that I mentioned when you let it sit and it bears fruit. There's a parallel with the Tower of Babel account. And I'd like for us to get reacquainted with the Tower of Babel. And I'll, and I'll explain to you why there is a parallel. And let's read the Tower of Babel account. In Genesis 11, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and that was the place or the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom, and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for motor. They said, Come, let us build a city for ourselves and a to make for ourselves a name. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. 
and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So if you've ever wondered why are there so many different languages and dialects, it goes all the way back to this account when there was the whole earth at that time used the same language and the same words. And because of that, they wanted to make a name for themselves and make them great and even make themselves for a city and whose tower will reach even into heaven. Think they had aspirations for space travel? Possibly. But the Lord, to counter that, instead confused their language and dispersed them into different parts of the world. But here's what I want to take from this passage, and I'm going to highlight it for us and, sh- and explain why there's a parallel. In verse 1, it says, The whole earth used the same language and same words. And here was the thought, and he's being quoted here, Come, let us, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Verse 6, Behold, they are one people, and they will have the same language, and this what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And then in verse 8, Because the Lord intervened, they stopped building the city. And here's the parallel, okay? The great statue parallels the Tower of Babel in these ways. And we need to get this. Since the very beginning of time, going even back to Nimrod, there has always been a desire by someone for world domination. That goes all the way back to Genesis this desire for world domination and to make a name for themselves, to make a great city. And that began all the way with Nimrod. But confusing the language only put a wrench in those plans. I, put, I say that specifically. It put a wrench in it. Nonetheless, that desire is still there. When we get to Nebuchadnezzar, the great statue vision was given to him He was the king of Babylon and the great world power at that time. And fast forward when you get to the book of Revelation, the final world power is described with a woman sitting on a scarlet beast and on her forehead written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Here's my case in point. The desire for world domination, it began with Nimrod, the first recorded kingdom. And that's going to culminate in the end times when a figure arrives on the scene and declares himself to be God, 
whom the scripture also calls the man of lawlessness. I want to ask us a question. At the Tower of Babel account, the languages were confused. Anyone want to venture to guess how the languages can be unconfused in the end times? I heard artificial intelligence. Any other? How about big tech? Anybody? Google Translate. There are now devices and software where you can speak into it in one language and it'll come out in another language. So if the desire for world domination was only hampered because the confusing of the language, what happens now if you can talk to a neighboring nation and have someone translate, or in this case, technology even, translate that communication? All that is to say is that at the end times, when there is a world domination, it could very well be by and through the aid of technology. And these big tech companies definitely have a lot of skin in the game here. So is big tech implicated in the end times? Well, now that we learn the account or are reminded of the account of the Tower of Babel, then big tech is implicated to unconfuse the language so that whoever this world superpower comprised of these different kings and kingdoms comes to fruition. Now the four great beasts. This other vision of Daniel of the four great beasts, the sum of it all is that it represented four kings during the end times who will arise from the great Mediterranean Sea or Mediterranean nations. And these four great beasts that Daniel saw coming out of the great sea, these are kings and kingdoms that God will use as instruments to punish Israel for their sin and rebellion. So these four great beasts that Daniel saw, who's in focus is the people in the land of Israel. And the fourth king of this great vision will be a fourth kingdom with ten kings, of which the little horn, and I'm going to start calling him anti-God, will arise from uprooting the first three kings of that ten-kingdom rule. And this is an important note concerning that great vision, and I've been arguing this time and time again, that the four kings described in Daniel's four great beasts' visions are in fact end times kings. And the biggest clue I want to remind us was that the first beast, the lion with eagle's wings, the scripture says, was given a human mind. And we've deduced there potentially that that could be describing artificial intelligence or some way, somehow, the downloading of one's conscience into this king. And to my knowledge, no kings in history has ever been given the mind of a man. So there's no kings or kingdoms in the past from us that has met this criteria, which is the case in point. These four great beasts, beginning with the lion with eagle's wings who was given a human mind, places these four kings and kingdoms in the end times, even 
future from us. And then Daniel, he had this other great vision of the ram and the goat. And the lesson there was in that vision from Daniel is that the ram and the goat, it represented historical and end times kings and kingdoms who conquered and will conquer Mediterranean nations and kings, including the people, land, and temple of Israel. So the Alexander the Greats and the powers that followed are implicated in that part of the world. And the ram represents ancient media Persia, and the goat represents ancient Yevon. But the small horn, which is of the goat, and a descendant of the goat, will be given authority over the regular, regular sacrifice in Israel's last king in the end times. Is this starting to be familiar? And, you're, and you, you remember this? The, beast, the beasts were from the sea, and there were beasts from the earth, And this, I believe, is intentional, meaning these figures in prophecy, they're called different animals with different features and coming from different origins to make it clear that they are distinct from one another. So the lion with eagle's wings, the bear with three ribs in its mouth, uh, the leopards with four heads and four wings of a bird, and the iron teeth, They were all beasts from the sea or the great Mediterranean Sea. And then when you get to the ram and goat, these were beasts, kings and kingdoms from the earth. So from these two visions, from the four great beasts, that's where anti-God is going to come from. He is the beast from the sea. And he is the little horn that was spoken of by Daniel. That, the man of lawlessness, is going to come out of this four great beasts and from that fourth beast or fourth kingdom, anti-God is going to come from that. And on the other side, from the ram and the goat, and particularly the goat, that's where Antichrist is going to come from, also known as the false prophet. He is the beast from the earth, and he is the small horn, which is distinct from the little horn, which was from the beast of the sea. So anti-God and anti-Christ will arrive on the scene. And that'll be at the final period of the indignation. And that interpretation was given to Daniel in Daniel 8, verse 19. And I want to give us a little spoiler alert. When is anti-God going to arrive? And when is the anti-Christ or the false prophet who's going to come before Him going to arrive? That's when we get to Revelation 13. Because John says that he sees in his vision a beast coming out of the sea, and from that comes anti-God. Then he also sees a beast coming from the earth who was given authority by the beast from the sea. And that'll be the Antichrist in the place of Christ and the false prophet. So what Daniel saw in the ram and the goat and the four great beasts, John pretty much takes the baton and takes it to the end. 
And that's when Revelation 13 comes to pass. 70 weeks prophecy. We're not going to get into this. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of layers to this prophecy. But if you kind of just take a step back and you look at when this vision was given to Daniel, it was at the end of the 70-year punishment of Babylonian captivity. They were at the end. And Daniel, recognizing this, he made a petition. He prayed on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. He confessed his sin and their sin before God, and Daniel appealed to the goodness and the faithfulness of their God. It was then in response to that that he was given this 70 weeks prophecy. He was not only given this vision, but he was also given the interpretation. And the short of it is, it's like, all right, Daniel, I know that the 70 years from the time you were taken into captivity till now has come to fruition. I mean, has come to completion or at the tail end of its completion. And those 70 years, again, corresponds to them disobeying the Mosaic law, namely in not giving the land the Sabbatic year of rest. So for every six years, they were to toil the land, and every seventh year, they were to give the land rest. They didn't do that for 70 years. And the Lord said, if you don't obey the law, then it'll come with cursing. So, okay, you didn't do, you owe me 70 years. So I'm going to come and take away, take you away from your land, take you into captivity, and my land will have rest for those 70 years. But Daniel, when he was given a response to his petition and prayer, he was like, yeah, we're at the end of 70, but he goes, 70 weeks has been decreed for your people Israel to make an end to their punishment. In other words, God's not done with them. They're a stubborn and rebellion people, rebellious people. God knows this, and he's saying their punishment is not over. He's then decreed 70 weeks of years for their continued punishment. So the, those 70 weeks corresponds to 490 years carved out in history as the total length of Israel's punishment for their sin, unfaithfulness, and even killing their Messiah. It is after that 70 weeks that has been decreed once we get to that end point, then God will rescue them, make full atonement for their sin, and then from there, established his kingdom on earth. But what we learn from this study is that this 70 weeks prophecy, it's not limited to the last seven years of human history. No, 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 no. It represents the entire time when there was an issuing of a decree and takes us to the very end of that 70 weeks prophecy. And we did some math because we had to convert a day for a year, find out the days, and 
we came close to a million days that was added to their punishment. But this 70 weeks prophecy, it's important because when is the world going to end? When God is done punishing his people, then the end will come. How do we know that? From the Old Testament. In particular, Daniel. And in, in here, more specifically, the 70 weeks of years prophecy that was given to him. So we took all of these calculations, used some calendars and conversions and trying to say, okay, well, if the decree that was spoken of implicated in this prophecy was this particular decree, Artaxerxes uh, Longmanus on his 20th year reign, and that was approximately 454 B.C., then that 70 weeks begins there and goes to the very end. And when you multiply their punishment with the day-for-a-year principle, and you recall for that one, we got that because our Lord, when His people were rebelling against God and against Moses in the wilderness for 40 days, since they left Egypt, God in turn is punishing them a, a day for a year. So for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness from the time they left Egypt until they died out. So we took that principle into Daniel's 70-week prophecy, and that takes us to the near future. The world's going to end at some time. And the 70-week prophecy does have an end point, And whatever that end point is, it does correspond to the end of the age, the end of the world, but also the ushering of everlasting righteousness and an eternal kingdom on earth. Not for the faint of heart, that study. But these were, these were the takeaways in if we had a, I mentioned this before, if we had like a whiteboard and it just stays there, this is one of those that'll just stay there. How do we translate all this? Especially now when the world's changing, it's changing rapidly. There's things going on. Our country, even our very own country, is not what it was. There's just, the world is changing and it's getting crazy even here. But despite all that and what's going on in other parts of the world, how can we take all of these learnings? Well, our focus needs to be on the Middle East. Because that's going to help us understand, are we close to the return of Christ or are we far? Well, there's things that need to happen before Christ come. And all those things are in the Middle East and concerning the people of Israel and the land of Israel. But here's what we have to look for. Here's what we can look for when there is a holy covenant involving the Mediterranean nations and Israel, there's some sort of holy covenant, our ears should really perk up. When we hear news that permission was granted to the Jews to rebuild the third temple or to rebuild the temple and reinstitute animal sacrifices, we're getting close to the end. When you see on your phone a pop-up, prophets proclaim their people are going to proclaim to be prophets in the Middle East. And Messiahs, we're going to hear reports 
There's messiahs or people claiming to be messiahs in the Middle East. They're going to make great claims. They're even going to perform some signs and wonders. Have you read the Acts of the Apostles? Something like that, but contemporary. When we hear that, the end is near. When there's going to be dispute and wars, especially involving the Mediterranean nations, and when there is a holy covenant, and there is going to be a renegade of that holy covenant, we're close to the end. We're close, or we are pretty much in the final period of the final period of the indignation. Okay. If you hear anything that some sort of world figure, world power, or world king, someone with authority is given a human mind, go to Daniel's visions. Re-listen to our study on the lion with eagle's wings and get reminded and acclimated there because Daniel... He must have thought it was bizarre, but that's what he saw. When we see here that someone or something was given a human mind, well, what about the humanoids? Well, if that humanoid was given power and is ruling a king or a nation or a kingdom, okay, maybe that. And then when there is an animal sacrifice, Whoever Israel's prime minister is, is going to be given over to another world leader and presumably killed. We're at the final period of the final period of the indignation. We are in smack in the middle or in the heart of the vision and prophecies even in the book of Revelation. And then last but not least, once Israel's destroyed... And there's some sort of erection that the scripture calls the abomination of desolation in the temple. We are in the last of last of days. So if we can just take these things, put them on the wall. That's what we learned from our Daniel series. And then of course, last but not least, Daniel ends with the sealing and concealing of his vision The angel instructed him, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And that would include us. The church, believers, with the Holy Spirit, and with his word, we will have insight and will understand but we will pause right here. So when we pick things back up, this will be like, oh yeah, okay, got it. Because I'm going to start to try to layer these in to our study of the book of Revelation. Again, thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. Next time, we'll continue our look back and review of what we've learned so far over the past two years studying Daniel and Revelation. And then we'll get back into our verse-by-verse expository examination of the final book in the Bible. We encourage you to visit our website to listen to and download our studies, all absolutely free, at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.